The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you that by your grace we know him and through him know you. Thank you. Now we ask that you would give more grace here in this moment and you would open up your word and you would, you would teach us. You would guide us into more of the truth so that we would know you more. We know you, we want to know you more and we look to you for grace and for power for that this morning. Please give it. Guide our words and guide our listening. Send your spirit in this room now to control us and steer us and illumine the text for our good and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name and say thank you. Amen. Nobody enjoys hardship and suffering. So naturally, we do all we can to avoid it. But we also know that sometimes you can't and actually shouldn't. Sometimes we take control of our minds then and step into hardship and suffering because we know that's the price we have to pay to enjoy certain benefits or freedoms or advantages. So we don't seek out suffering, but sometimes we have to be willing to suffer for the sake of something else. That's, that's life, that's true for all of us, it's true for Christians in, in all the same ways that it is for everybody else. But additionally... Christian has to think of one more thing, something else to consider when we think about suffering here in this world, because in a very real sense, we are here on earth for a different purpose. We, we have another reason we are here to bear witness to God's gracious, saving work in Christ, and to speak of that message in our words, in our deeds, so that God will be honored and people redeemed, brought, brought to know him and brought into the enjoying of him and new life in Christ. And that may bring us some hardship and some suffering. And if it does, that's okay. It's okay. We live in a world now that's broken under sin and it's, it's alienated from God and filled with not good. It was made very good, but now it's filled with not good and it's in this world that the message of God and his grace is needed. And it's in this world that a message like that would shine out. And it's into this world that God has sent us on purpose, knowing that we're going to face hardship. It's okay. In some ways, we have to kind of take control of our minds and say, yeah, it's worth it. I'm willing to step into and willing to suffer for the sake of this gospel. And that brings us to our passage for today. And really, the main emphasis of the whole book of 2 Timothy. God's deployment of us, his people, joined together with each other and with him, the one who first suffered for the sake of the gospel. His deployment of us all together, willing to suffer for this gospel of grace, which is going to be difficult, but which is possible 
because of how God helps us. Some of which we saw last time we were in 2 Timothy, up in verses 3 to 7, we looked at and saw God at work in us, particularly towards the end, to give us his spirit. His spirit who lives in us, not as a spirit giving us fear and timidity and, and, a, and a, a tendency to shrink back into self-preservation, but a spirit which wants to press into us all, of that, all that's true, all the truth all around us, and thereby free us from love of self, free us to love him and love others. That was what we saw before. And that produces in us a confidence and a power that equips us for the type of ministry that we're going to see today in verses 8 to 10 where we find out more of what God has done in a different way. So we look at verses 8 to 10 this morning and you probably notice that when I read I'm going to stop in the middle of the sentence. I had to break up this paragraph in some place. This is a natural place to break it. But there's going to be some, some carryover into what we see next week because I am stopping right in the middle of a thought. We're going to look at verses 8 to 10 this morning. I'm going to make two observations. One, first, a commandment. And then second, another way that God helps us to keep that commandment. Something that his spirit does in us, shows us, and builds us up with. So two observations, but first let me read the text. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. Therefore... Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We'll stop there. Two observations. Here's the first. Join in gospel ministry regardless of the potential cost. Join in gospel ministry regardless of the potential cost. Verse 8 begins with the word therefore because he's building on what we've just said in verse 7. You have the spirit, you have the spirit of confidence and power in us and gives us a sound mind and therefore don't shrink back in fear, ashamed of the message about Jesus or of Paul the prisoner of Jesus. Don't be ashamed. There's a phrase we need to to stop on it and think about it carefully because shame is such a powerful word. It's used in a lot of different contexts. So what is he getting at here? Here it's helpful for us to, to just hold to the basic. Shame is the opposite of honor. So it's helpful to think here of shame as the eroding of honor, the undercutting of it, the, the loss of a, of a status, of a standing. Think of how a person might say, maybe. I'm ashamed of my thick accent because it makes me sound uneducated and foolish. What that person is saying is, I've lost honor. I've lost status in the eyes of others. And I perceive that. And so I, I myself have, have lost some, some sense of, of importance. And that's because of my accent. And so I'm ashamed of it. That's what he's getting here. Grab hold of that meaning. And so what he's saying in the first half of the verse is Christian, 
Don't go there. Take control of your mind and do not regard yourself as of lesser status or of lesser honor because of the gospel. You might be tempted to because you realize that the gospel to a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of other people's eyes, the gospel looks foolish, it looks weak, it looks insulting, it looks offensive, and so they oppose it and they look down on you because you embrace it and you talk about it. So you might be tempted to, to kind of feel like I've lost some status, I'm dishonored because of this, but don't go there. Don't take the lower position of dishonor. Don't be ashamed of the gospel or of suffering gospel servants. That's the first half of the verse. But notice, the goal is not just to kind of stop there and say, yeah, I'm not taking a back seat to anybody. I'm confident. I'm bold and, and I'm loud and proud and I'm out there. And I'm going to make a t-shirt, not ashamed. And I'm going to put a bumper sticker on my car, not ashamed. You've seen that, right? And I'm going to like be forward and I'm going to hold my particular identity and, and like really be about that. That's not the goal. The second half of the verse tells us what the first half of the verse is for. Don't be ashamed but share in suffering for the gospel. The second half, though, that's what he's really after. Like, like if I were to say, don't worry about the money, take a vacation. What am I really after there for you? I want you to take a vacation. And I think, maybe, I sense that you're worried about the cost of the vacation, so I brought that up first, but you missed my point if you focused on not worrying about money. We miss Paul's point if we focus on not being ashamed. Loud and, and bold. His real point is embrace costly, suffering gospel ministry. And in fact, grammatically, that's the imperative in the sentence. That's what he's after. But you won't do that if the gospel itself is a point of dishonor to you, if you have a low view of it and, and of his servants and you don't find honor in the message of God's grace in Christ and, and you don't personally experience it as, as refreshment to your heart and, and a bestowing of an honored, I am precious feeling. If you, don't, if you don't experience that, then you're not going to stand for and, and speak of and live for this message if it's likely or even certain to bring you hardship. You'll shrink back from it. So, so what's needed here? Obviously what's needed here is that this message come to appear to me as it is as something incredibly honorable. And what's needed is that I come to experience honor. Wonder even that this would be me, that even me, that I would be. That I need to get to the spot where I say, like, wow. And that's where Paul's going to go in a minute, in the next two verses. But before we get there, we, we need to consider this a little bit more here. 
His goal is that we join in suffering for the gospel. Suffering like how? Well, that's going to depend widely, depending on your circumstances, your time. For Paul, suffering for the gospel meant a whole bunch of physical beatings and loneliness and even death. That's one extreme, which we're probably not going to regularly face here. So what, what does that mean for us? Well, for us today, we live in the spirit of this challenge if we think like this. So let me encourage you to ask, ask this question. What would I not want to have happen to me or my family? that gospel ministry might bring my way? What loss or what hardship, what awkwardness might I encounter or might my family suffer if I, if I talk about Jesus or if I serve him or serve others in his name? And here in, in my context, here in America, in my neighborhood, in my office place, in my school, what do I, I most not want to have happen to me? And if you answer that question, you've probably found what suffering for the gospel would look like for you. Here's two for me, and I, I, bet, I bet they might be yours too. This is for me. I really don't want to be ostracized from my friends who are of a different faith background. Is that, is that your answer? Is that one of your answers? If it is, and I think it probably is, for a lot of us. Right there, you might have found what it would mean to suffer for the gospel. And careful, what I'm not saying is that you're supposed to think, how could I most quickly ostracize myself or my friends? <laughs> what would be most blatantly, shockingly, insensitively offensive to them? That's what I'm supposed to do. Jesus told me. No. Some people do that. I've, I've known a lot of people like that, frankly, who misunderstand this passage, or the one in Romans 1, and they put the T-shirt on, not ashamed. And they kind of figured out, my, my, I saw this a lot in college kids. I saw this a lot in college kids. They figured out, people on my dorm floor don't like this. Here we go. And it was just foolish and insensitive and rude. It wasn't being faithful. It wasn't, it wasn't being appropriately embracing costly gospel ministry. It was being off-putting. The point is not that, that you've got to do what's offensive. The point is you must be willing to suffer the loss of your friends. I need to be willing to pay that cost if sticking to the truth brings that. I've got a lot of friends who are of different faith backgrounds, and if, and if one of them says to me, in some way or another, so can other people in other religions or of no religion at all who are just good people, they, they, can, go to, right? they can go to heaven too, right? God accepts them too, right? Be tactful. There's a lot of ways to answer that question, and there's a lot of questions beneath that question. Be wise. Be sensitive and gracious, but tell the truth. And be willing to bear the cost of that person doesn't talk to me anymore. 
it's worth it. Because they need to know the truth. And God needs to be honored as the only way and the truth and the life. I think for a lot of us, that's a, that's a big piece of what it would mean to suffer for the sake of the gospel ministry for us to face the possibility of losing friends or social standing of some sort. But there's something else for me and maybe for you too that comes as soon as I ask the question, this pops my mind too. I don't want to lose my freedom. I don't want to lose my freedom, my downtime. You know what it is, the, the time that you have after you've done everything that you have to do in which you now get to do the things that you want to do. I don't want that time sucked up with gospel ministry too. Then I don't want everything left for me. I live there. Probably nobody else does. I live there. And I have a real strong feeling that if I go across the fence and start talking to my neighbor, my whole afternoon is going to get shot. And I was counting on breathing and relaxing this afternoon and doing whatever I want to do. If I actually embrace serving or loving this other family, that they might see Jesus in me or they might see the kindness of Jesus or they might see their need met by someone in Jesus' name, I have a real strong feeling that, and it's going to be Monday morning again pretty quick and I'm going to be just like exhausted. I can't do that. I can't go there. I don't want to. That's too high of a cost. Again, what I'm not saying is that free time is sin. Don't ever try to hit me. No, 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 no. I'm not, not saying that. And so you have to be willing to embrace, perhaps, the, the cost of losing that with gospel ministry being the controlling factor, not protection of my time, the controlling factor on the decisions that I make. This is God's command. This is what he's calling us to. We're going to have a lot more opportunities to think about this throughout the book. But there's, there's two that when I ask the question, what do, I, what do I not want to have happen that might have happened, those two things popped in my mind right away, maybe for you too, or something else. But this is his command to us. Don't be ashamed of this, but instead join with me and with the rest of the people of God in suffering for the sake of the gospel that it would be seen and known. Share in it by the power of God, not by your own strength. This is not a just do it command. God is fully, fully, fully committed to providing the help for us that we need on the inside, some of which we've already seen and he gives us the spirit, some of which we're going to see in just a moment. What he wants to work in us so that we see this gospel not as something that just comes along to rob me of life, but in fact gives it to me. Something that not, does not diminish my status, but in fact elevates it and honors me. And more so over all of that, shows me God. I'm going to be emphasizing what this does for us, but I need to say over all of this, notice the little connection, the end of verse 8, which is going to lead me into talking about 9 and 10. 
by the power of God who saved us. This is intended to be a description of God. What God has done. And we're going to talk about it in what's happened to me. But it's set up and this is what God has done. Behold God. In a hard to explain way, something sweet and marvelous happens in the human heart when we behold God. So keep that kind of like right here on your shoulder as we walk through this and say, this is what what God's done for you and to you, Christian, so behold this and be honored by it and see it as, as precious and valuable, but realize he did this. Oh, marvelous is he. Which takes us to the second point. Here it is. Strength for ministry is found in marveling at God's sovereign grace for us. Strength in ministry is found in marveling at God's sovereign grace for us. About a year ago, I read a story about an elementary school girl who was extraordinarily tall for her age. And as often goes with that, she was pretty uncoordinated and often made fun of and constantly just walked around living in embarrassment. And then she discovered basketball. And that changed everything. She didn't get any shorter. It didn't change who she was, but she saw who she was in a different context. And it was no longer shameful, but it was actually empowering. And now later in the WNBA, she really enjoys that. She didn't become any different, but she just saw, this is what I am. And what people say about that is, is embarrassing and shameful and hurtful. But if, if, if I can hear something else said and seen, then actually this becomes really good. That's exactly what Paul's trying to do here in these two verses that follow. He's trying to take what we already know, what we've already heard, and change our perspective, put it in a different context, so that what we are will seem not embarrassing and shameful, but tremendously honoring. But to get there, we've got to walk through just about every phrase of these next two verses. And so I'm going to have to ask you to pay attention. And I mean, like, look closely at things because it's phrase after phrase after phrase after phrase here. It takes us deeper and deeper and deeper into God and some marvelous things that God has done for us, his own. So we've got to focus here. Verse 9, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. God saved us, his people. So he's talking to Christians here, obviously. He's talking to people who are saved. I mean, Christians, eternally, spiritually, 
God saved us from sin and its consequences. He saved us, not we ourselves. And in saving us, he called us to something. He called us. He saved us. Which tells us, that that connection there tells us he's talking about a certain type of calling. Paul always uses calling in this way. Sometimes we use calling, and this is fine, to talk about like a job or a career path. This is my calling in life. Paul doesn't mean that. He's talking about something related to salvation. It's one, a calling given to Christians, to those God actually saves. The connection there. So this is not the general sort of salvation call that goes out to everyone on earth. We might find it in places all over the Bible. We might find it, for instance, in Matthew 11. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I give you rest, rest for your soul. So all you come. That's a general call to everybody you can hear. Or John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's, that's God's general call. It's in a bunch of places in the Bible, and we reiterate it whenever we share the gospel ourselves. Everyone, I'm speaking English, everyone who can hear and understand English, hear this and come to Jesus. All of you who labor and are heavy laden, all of you who, who have need, come to Jesus and you will find rest for your souls and he will give you eternal life and you will not perish. Come. That is the general call that goes out to everyone, everywhere, always. And that's not what this verse is about. So I'm going down that path to make clear that's real. That's in the Bible. That's true. And so is something else. What Paul's doing here for Christians is he's peeling back the outer covering of my salvation, if you're a Christian, peeling back the outer covering of your salvation to answer the question, why did I come? Why did I answer that general call that was made to everybody? Lots and lots and lots and lots of people hear that call and say, no thanks. I mean, I was sitting right next to a whole bunch of them. In various ways, they say, no thanks. They either turn away kind of disinterested or they get violently and oppose it somewhere in the middle. But lots, most, in fact, say, no thanks. Why did I respond differently? Am I better? Am I smarter? Am I more clever? Am I more insightful? Maybe I'm more humble. Maybe I'm more willing. Maybe I'm a better listener. Or I'm just good or good enough. I mean, is that why? God called everyone all the same. Speaking English, they called everybody in English. They all understood it. It was all fair. It was all clear. It was a kind offer to all like anybody, everybody, whoever, come and you'll find life. And most said no, but I said yes. Why? Paul's answering that question here. And the answer to that question is really important. 
Because as you sink your roots into this answer that Paul gives us here, it will draw out from it, draw up from it, refreshing, nourishing water that will come up into your soul and will cause wonder to blossom because you're going to see, if you draw up out of this answer, you see in it something that says, precious, beloved, honored, chosen on you. And that about God says, mighty and omnipotent and wise and loving. About him. And you'll see in that, this is the God who is mighty and omnipotent and wise and deep. And I'm the one that he regarded as precious and he looked upon. And what you see is a, is a profound security that you sit in the hands of this mighty one, of this good one. And you didn't get there by anything that you did. And so you can't get yourself out by anything that you do. I sit here firmly grasped by one in a wide, long, high, deep love. And this is what the Spirit of God would want to make you extremely sober-minded about. And this is what would free you from love of self and desire and a need to protect yourself and would free you to say, I am most protected. I'm good. And I can go. Let's look at the answer. Why did I say yes to God's general worldwide call? Because, verse 9, again speaking to Christians, those who've said yes. God saved us, calling you to a holy calling. Holy, that means special and set apart. Use some different words to make it clear. He saved us, and in so doing, he summoned us to a set-apart destiny. which he's about to elaborate on. He saved us, called us, summoned us to a set-apart destiny. Not, not because of anything in me. It says explicitly, not because of our works. Didn't have anything to do with us, but because, next phrase, of his own purpose and grace. And the emphasis there is on his own. So the contrast, not us, but his own. It's God's own purpose, God's own grace, his gracious, not deserved, not earned purpose and plan. In grace, he counseled himself and hatched a plan with himself and decided then to do. Not because of what we had done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And now look at this closely. The grammar again makes something very clear. Our finger is on the word grace. The grammar wants us to keep our finger on the word grace, which he gave us. When? Before the ages began. which he gave us in time, eternity, past. Not after we believed, before we were born. Belief does not cause grace. Grace causes belief. 
Why did I say yes? Because before the ages began, he gave me grace. Back into eternity past, we come to find out something. God graced me. Christian, God graced you because he decided to grace you by his own gracious purpose and plan, not because of anything we'd done. He counted you. He graciously listed you in Christ. That's the only place that his grace is dispensed, in Christ. He put you into union with Christ and united you with him explicitly not because of your works. This is the destiny that he created for you. All in eternity past. And then in a moment, one day, summoned you to. Because, of course, it had to be carried out in a moment, in, in real time, in a real, real place where physical beings, this is a physical world, it had to be enacted and carried out somewhere. That's verse 10. But as we look at verse 10, realize what we're coming to. We're coming to it from this understanding of verse 9, that when we look at the actual acting out of the gospel in verse 10, what we're looking at, think of it this way, what's going on, what, what we're being called to suffer on behalf of is a father seeking out his beloved lost children who were destined to be with him. We are not engaged in a sales job. We are not engaged in trying to convince somebody to believe something and then buy something that they don't really want. We're matchmakers in an eternal love affair. And we're just trying to, to lay the bridge in between and introduce someone to the one who has them in sight and is in hot pursuit. I heard somebody a long time ago taking a verse from the Bible talks about the, the goodness and mercy of God chasing us all the days of our lives and he, and he called those two words, he used those two words, goodness and mercy, and called them the hounds of heaven. He called them the hounds of heaven. And he put us in a woods at night. He said, have you ever been in the woods at night? You hear all kinds of sounds. You don't know where they're coming from. But off in the distance, you hear this baying. Oh, oh. And you don't know what's going on or where. And it's getting closer and it's getting closer. Oh, oh, oh. And you, you realize it's dogs and they're coming. And, and you first realize, I don't know what they're coming for. They're, and then you get a little closer and you think, maybe they're coming for me. And you start to run. And they're chasing you now the hounds of heaven, his goodness and mercy and pursuit. And you realize somewhere along the way, they're, they're chasing me down. They're going to catch me. And this person said, catch you, though at first you don't think so, catch you for your good. 
All along, he had your scent, and he was in pursuit of you. You didn't know it at first. You didn't even know what was going on. And then you were afraid of it as you ran, but he ran you down with goodness and mercy and goodness and mercy and goodness and mercy. He tracked your scent all the way to where he finally treed you, and when you thought it was the end, it was actually the beginning of life. We're just, to mix the metaphors, we're just the dogs chasing people down that God has their scent and God's trying to catch them. That horribly mangles the metaphor, but you understand what I'm saying. Part of what's difficult for us in, in gospel ministry is not only does it impinge upon our time and, and maybe cost us friends, but we also kind of feel like, and nobody really wants this. Like, I'm just trying to sell people a bill of goods. No, you're not. You're trying to restore a, a separated relationship. You're trying to bring a destiny into completion. We're objects of that, and we are partakers of it too. Look at verse 10. So our finger's still on the word grace, but now the grace gets manifested in the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Need to be enacted, of course, and it was when Christ came. And what we see here then in this verse is the tracing out of this is what the gospel is actually about. What Jesus did and then what we speak about, what we tell of. He abolished death. When he appeared, he brought an end to spiritual death and brought to light life. Immortal, eternal life. He stepped onto the stage and he said, you know, look, look at me. This is what life lived out look, looks like. And then I die and I rise again from the, from the grave, destroying death and bringing a life that, that never goes away. That's what I'm about. That's what God's pursuit of people is about. Bringing them from death and bringing them into light. Accomplished through the gospel through Christ's death on the cross. This is the message that we know we're familiar with, and what he just wants to make clear there is that eternity past steps into the present and gets enacted first in Jesus' life and then gets told of as we spread the gospel to people, we help them come to find the life that he meant for them. We announce it to all the world in general. We just, we just speak it and announce it with arms open wide, making the promise clear, come and you will find this life. Come and you will find the end of death. And most say no thanks. But some, you and others, unbeknownst to us and unbeknownst to them. It's, a, it's how you kind of come to it, how you stumble into it, in fact. You realize, I, I was born and raised and I grew up and I, and I didn't understand that all along there was something coming for me. Someone coming for me. I heard one day somebody... Somebody speak of, come and you'll find life. 
come to him and he'll give you this forgiveness so that you won't perish. And you heard in that, that general call, for some reason, unknown to you, for some reason you heard in that a shepherd's voice and you heard him talking to you. That happened to you. And it will happen to other people too. You heard your shepherd's voice and your ears came open and your eyes saw and you believed and you were saved. And that, Paul wants to point out, is all because, not because you're smarter or better or more humble or more patient, but all because long, 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 long ago, God put grace on you and put you in Christ and has been pursuing you ever since. This is sweet, and it is, it is profound. And God, through Paul, wants you to see this and know it. He explains it right here. He, he puts it in several of his letters. He, he brings it out in front of us so that we would see what's going on. He's going to come back to it later in chapter 2, in fact. So we'd see what's going on kind of behind the scenes or beneath the scenes and would realize I'm an object of a gospel message that is profound and is extremely, extremely, in fact, honoring as it declares to me God had his eye on me and regarded me as precious and sought me out like a shepherd seeking down a lost sheep. And he brought me home to him and then enlisted me in his service so that I could be a part of him pursuing other people as well. Others that he regards as precious and has his eye on and is in pursuit of and wants to use me to reach out to. That's a place of profound honor. Not burden. And certainly not shame. This is the gospel. This is the depth behind the gospel. And as the Spirit of God takes these eternal past truths and presses them into you, shows you the whole of the story, what God's intention, his intended result of that would be for you to say, oh my, oh my. Oh my. Thank you. I'm humbled. I'm in awe of that. To be loved like that. To be pursued like that. To be wanted like that. Oh my. It's a glorious gospel of profound depth.
And you are privileged to be an object of it. And privileged to be a messenger of it. And any suffering or hardship that might come your way because of that is worth it. Does this cause wonder in your soul? For some of us, I think it probably causes consternation or confusion. Are there more questions to ask and answer? Maybe. I'd love to talk more about it if you want to. But let me, let me encourage you to sit in wonder at this. And to realize just how completely secure you are in his hands. He, by his own purpose, fashioned a destiny for you and called you to it. And he will never leave you nor forsake you because he cannot disown himself. And he cannot go back on his purposes. You are his forever. And he has you secure. You are a privileged child of God and can afford to give away this world for him and for others. May God press that into you by his spirit and give you strength and courage from it. And may we continue to consider it as we, as we take the communion elements in hand here now and, and think again about what Jesus did on the cross to close up this desired relationship, desired by God, to close it up and bring us back into union with him. Let me pray. Father, there are lots of, lots of things floating around in my mind and probably in all of our minds right now. Will you settle us? Will you settle us in wonder at what's been done for us, but also settle us in wonder about you, the one who did it? a great and gracious, loving and pursuing God. And I'm grateful that you caught me. As we look now at these elements of the communion table in front of us, we look at the, the cup and bread, and we recall what you did in Jesus' cross. Will you grow in us wonder and thankfulness and a resolve that's encouraged to face hardship? 
really it's okay. Given what you've done for us, it's okay. You'll carry us through the rest. Give us that kind of resolve now as we take this cup and bread in hand. Continue to meet with us, please, Lord. Show us Jesus. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.